Welcome to the Human Biology Association podcast that we're titling The Sausage of Science. I'm Chris, and I'm here with Kara. Hey, everybody. And we are on the Public Relations Committee for the Human Biology Association. I am a biocultural medical anthropologist at the University of Alabama. And I'm a biological anthropologist interested in human energetics at the University at Albany. And um, first, let me say the sausage of science, one, just being an amazing name, but two, is actually the creation uh, of our first uh, interviewee, our first guest for the uh, Sausage of Science podcast. So Sean Rafferty, who you'll hear about later on, uh, and you'll likely hear the phrase, uh, gave us the title to our podcast. So thank you again, Sean. So Sean uh, is an archaeologist, actually, but is going to be speaking on skepticism as it applies and as part of the public relations committee for the HBA our goal is to put the spotlight on new research and emerging scholarship and connect all these things to popular culture. Yeah exactly we want to be able to uh, highlight what's going on within uh, our wonderful group of the Human Biology Association and even broader and so Dr. Sean Rafferty is an archaeologist at the University at uh, Albany here with me And we are definitely not above using our own resources and people for our first podcast. Uh, But he's going to be talking about skepticism. uh, And he gave a talk, a Science on Tap talk, back in March, uh, talking about how to smell bullshit and basically how to determine whether the information you are bombarded with is valid or not. Right before we get to that, we interviewed him and we have a lecture that we're going to uh, podcast for you. Uh, We just want to tell you where we can find, you can find out more about us. So we're on all the usual venues, Facebook. Uh, We have a website and Twitter. Our Facebook account is Human Biology Association. Just look it up. Uh, Our Twitter is at humbioassoc. And our website is humbio.org. And then you can find both of us on places as well. I'm I'm Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. I am Kara Akabak on Twitter, and you can also email me at cakabak at albany.edu. And I guess you can email me too. I'm at cdlynn, L-Y-N-N, at ua.edu. And we'll remind you of all that very, very important information at the end of the podcast as well. We might even give you the spelling so you can get it right. We might, mightn't we? Um, well, thanks for joining us for our very first podcast. It's good to see you again. Uh, we did a little intro that we're going to edit in with this a uh, little bit later. And in that intro, we talked a little bit about who we are and a little bit about who you are. And I said I was going to butter you up by starting off saying how you taught the best single course in grad school that I ever took, that cognitive archaeology course. I say that every time I see you just to positively dispose you toward us. But um, anyway, how are you? I'm great, and the, the, the buttering up is working. I feel, I feel very positive right now. Good, good, good. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue that trend then in the future. All right, so let me just launch right into things then. What we didn't say and what I should, should bring up is, is that you're not a human biologist, but your lecture and your interests now speak more to how uh, we interpret science and pop culture, and, and we think that's important. We want to bring that up and and not just talk about human biology, but talk about science in general. And in your talk that we're going to hear in just a second, you mentioned 
that you got more into skepticism as a discipline because of your interest in podcasting. Um, so it's not ironic that you're our first podcast guest. And I just wonder if we could start off really light by hearing a little bit about some of your favorite podcasts. Sure. Um, I mean, podcasts were really a revelation to me, the whole new media way of um, absorbing information, which has a it's a two-edged sword. It's got its good side. We'll talk about the bad side maybe later. Um, but just the idea that you can just walk around and all that usual dead time of driving somewhere or walking somewhere, you can actually be absorbing content and information was, um, you know, it was, it was very uh, impactful for me. Um, the one, though, that really got me started down this intellectual road that I've been on was... Um, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Anybody who's into the modern skepticism movement will probably cite that podcast as being uh, hugely influential. It's hosted by a guy named um, Stephen Novella, who is a neurologist uh, out of Yale. Um, two of his brothers, Bob and Steve Novella, who I believe are in the IT business, um, Another guy named Evan Bernstein, who's actually a CPA in his day job, and they just brought on a, um, a, a new rogue, as they call themselves, the skeptical rogues, um, and that's um, Cara Santa Maria, whom I've already had been following, uh, in part to give a little bit of, you know, at, at least a, a one step towards gender equality in the, in the podcast, but Cara is a professional science educator, sort of the, the job I wish I had if I were, you know, a hundred times more photogenic than I actually am. Um, but, you know, it, every podcast is basically them talking amongst themselves. They've got a really good chemistry with each other. They've been doing it. There's like, I think, 600 episodes at this point. Um, and that's been um, really influential for me. I met most of them at a conference out in Las Vegas a few years ago at the um, the Amazing Meeting uh, that was hosted by James the Amazing Randy uh, every year and um, since discontinued, but that was also, uh, it was great to, to meet them. Now, besides that one, I mean, you can go to any any podcast server, you know, iTunes, whatever, and enter skeptic or skepticism, and you'll probably find dozens of them. The Center for Scientific Inquiry uh, has one. Um, skeptic Magazine has a couple of them. Um, Skepticality is one of them, which I used to listen to. Um, I've been off of that now. They have another one called Monster Talk that's specifically aimed at um, the cryptozoology um, crowd. Uh, critically, again, about cryptozoology. Um, but they also bring in a lot of, like, science and folklore and, you know, what, what might be some of the facts behind that may have spurred some of the stories we see. Um, there's one called Skeptoid that's hosted by a, gang, a guy named Brian Dunning who covers really bite-sized in, like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes or less about oh, what happened at Roswell, um, or um, what were the Phoenix Lights, or what is homeopathy. So if you ever want to assign something to a class, uh, he's also got some video content, so I recommend that uh, as, um, as well. 
And I'll end with, since this is a um, kind of a human biology uh, pod, uh, podcast, um, there's one, there's an organization called uh, the, um, the uh, oh, I'm going to blank on, on the name now that I'm trying to think about it, uh, the Society for Science-Based Medicine. Uh, and Stephen Novella, whom I mentioned earlier, is part of that. But another guy, Mark Chrislip, hosts a sort of a critical analysis of pseudomedicine called, um, and the, the, the title for this is telling, it's called Sisyphus Speaks, um, which is sort of emblematic of the fact that, if you'll forgive me, bullshit is uh, eternal and it keeps coming up and you have to keep whacking it down um, uh, every so often. But Sisyphus Speaks covers uh, particularly what's new in the world of, um, of pseudo-medicine you know, um, and, and critically evaluates that. So those are a few of my favorites. Can I ask a cool. non-skepticism favorite podcast? What is your fun podcast? My fun podcasts, I listen to um, Penn Jillette's podcast every week, Penn Sunday School. Uh, in part, that's a little bit of, there's a little bit of skeptical content. He's also a very outspoken atheist and talks very knowledgeably about that. But also, they're just um, there's three of them, um, him and two of his pals, and they're just really funny people uh, listening to them um, banter back and forth. And then also the Cracked podcast. Now, Cracked, for those who don't know, it was used to be Mad Magazine Light. It was like a ripoff of Mad Magazine back in the 70s and 80s, and then eventually it went defunct, and the name was bought out by um, uh, by uh, a guy named Mike O'Brien, who turned it into one of the most successful um, websites out there. And they actually have a large amount of pretty well-researched science and also just kind of critical knowledge history um, podcasts, usually in a listicle format. Here are five amazing things about <laughs> World War II you didn't know. Um, but unlike, say, your BuzzFeed kind of con uh, approach, nothing against BuzzFeed. I, if I'm slumming, I'll, I'll go there um, as well. Uh, but they actually put some a lot of time into researching this. And their podcast, again, um, is uh, it's funny um, but it's, it's, it's really good edutainment, I think, um, that actually has, uh, some, some, uh, attempt to, uh, to get the science right. I'll also cool. throw a plug oh. to the, the, the How Stuff Works podcasts. All of those are, are a lot of fun also. We always hear about program notes on these podcasts, so we're going to have to create some and we'll, we'll provide everyone a list so they can, they can enjoy those as well. Yeah, and I also, uh, Chris started with saying that though you're not a human biologist, what's going on in the world is really important for us to look at skepticism and how, again, to judge the information we get every day. Uh, but even for human biologists listening to this, just think about your classrooms and your students. How many of our students are unable to identify valid sources uh, and actually be able to judge web content versus written content and which are the ones they should actually use? Uh, and so <clears throat> this might kind of lead a little bit into our, our, our next question, but let's start with, uh, one, your definition of skepticism, which is going to be a little bit of a spoiler for the podcast, but it'd be great to hear your take on that again and um, kind of what the hell is going on in the world right, right now where pseudoscience and alternative facts are becoming, you know, air quotes, real facts and people just, you know, lap it up alternative facts that that's got to be you know if there's like a george orwell medal for um 
for uh, ironic name terms that should be in there. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm Sean. Explain why the world is so messed up, right? Um, we make it easy for you. We I really do. I appreciate that. You know, seconds are. Okay. Well, I actually have been okay. Uh, yeah, that's what you wanted about the the definition of skepticism first, and um, I don't think it'll be too big a spoiler because I don't remember what I said. Um, <laughs> I did glance at my notes, but uh, as I recall, I break it down into uh, two uh, ideas. And uh, by the way, you can, again, you ask 10 skeptics, you'll get 12 answers about what skepticism <laughs> is. Um, the, the movement as such is, is defined by, you know, the, the herding cats kind of attitude um, of its of its members, but I say one. It's a skeptic is someone for whom verifiable evidence is of the utmost importance. Who tries to live what I call an evidence based life. Um, believe in something because there are facts, real facts that can be you know that are that are external to one's subjective perception uh, and that can be agreed upon. By, uh, by people that can be replicated. And then also, I say, it's someone who is aware of their own cognitive limitations, who's aware of the fact that they can be wrong about things and that people are wrong about things all the time. There's a book written, I forget the author, but the title you can find is called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Um, and the idea is that, you know, people are not evolve to admit fault and error. In fact, that's probably, um, that, that's probably the ability or, or the, the necessity to admit you're wrong about something might even, might even be selected against. Um, otherwise maybe we'd be, maybe we'd be better at, uh, better at it. So again, someone who is living an evidence-based life to the greatest degree possible and who also has, and this is not my term, but someone who has, um, cultured a sense of neurocognitive humility, uh, aware that they can be wrong. And in fact, they're wrong because their brains make them be wrong systematically about certain things in certain settings. Right. Uh, which brings me, actually, I don't know if you have it there, Chris, but one of your favorite quotes uh, from Sean's podcast uh, was, be most skeptical of yourself. Um, and I think that that's a hard thing I feel to teach. So one part of this, I guess it goes part of the question is, in so many cases, reality can be very, very subjective. Uh, so if you tell people that, you know, no, you don't have it as bad as you might think, which is a very, very general example, but the day that they, you know, the life that they live day in and day out, to them, it is horrible and they don't actually see the broader picture. Um, so how do you deal with that subjective part? of, you know, they're very willing to believe some of the BS that they are given explaining why their lives are so terrible, but when that BS is not, you know, grounded in any facts. So how do you handle that subjectivity of reality? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna gild the lily on that, but it's something which you have to teach yourself to do. It's something that you have to practice, uh, to, to, if you, if you, what, what I will say is if you find yourself getting, getting upset about something, if you feel negative emotions about something you've seen or read or heard, that should set off a little skeptical warning light in the back of your head where you stop and look and see, is there any actual evidence that 
whatever it is has got my backup is real. Um, is my attitude towards this, whatever it is, defensible? Do I have reasons for thinking this? Or do I feel this way because whatever group I identify with um, collectively argues that I should feel this way? Or because somebody said this is, uh, somebody who opposes this idea is somebody whom I have some kind of social identity uh, with? Um, am I thinking in terms of an argument from authority uh, or an argument from tradition or something like that? I talked a little bit in the, uh, in the presentation about logical fallacies, systematic ways in which people misinterpret um, causation, why things happen. And um, they're often used as a, aha, so-and-so committed, that's, that's an argument, that's, that's, a, that's an ad hominem argument, therefore you're wrong. And that's exactly the wrong way to use them. I mean, you should be aware to evaluate other people's arguments, but the best thing is to look at your own arguments, to look at yourself and say, oh, am I committing one of these fallacious arguments uh, in, um, uh, in some way? So Again, to, to go back to where I started, it's something which you, one, have to realize is a necessity to actually realize that you have to continually police your own thinking. Uh, and it's something which you have to uh, practice. And you have to get used to saying, yeah, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about this. Uh, and, and here's what I've actually learned in place of what I actually thought. That's, that, that doesn't come easy. To people, and it doesn't come easy. I think again because it's not something that that we evolve to be able to do. Yeah, that was my that was my favorite quote as well. It makes me think of the problem with LPUs in academia, at least publishable units. Our tendency to push out any of our research that's remotely got a p value of uh, it's 0 0.06. It's close enough. Without paying attention to effect size or anything else, we could go into the weeds on statistics, but there's a social slash professional imperative that, and, and I find a lot of times I'm, I am skeptical of my own findings, but I, I need to feed my kids and I need to pay the rent. And we tend to, to veer away from that gut feeling because we don't want to, we don't want to undermine our own self. But I, I tend to tell my students that if, Something irritates me trying to model for them. Like I hated reading Marx as a as a grad student. That I I probably actually need to internalize it at at a different level. There's something there that that I'm in conflict with. So we need to pay attention to that attitude. So that's that's sort of my personal re retooling of what you just said, uh, or or I should say my own bullshit. So that sort of leads me into our our next question, which is. When we are confronting people who are essentially bullshitting themselves, I get this a lot with the evolutionary studies program I run. You, you mentioned in your lecture something about aliens, right? But a, a real world example I get in Alabama and actually in New York all the time is my family believes in creationism. How do I argue with them and tell them the facts? How would you respond to that? The honest answer is, um, and it's not a very satisfying answer, I admit, is that I usually wouldn't. I will, I mean, I, I intervene in people's bullshit, as it were, 
uh, in a fairly narrow range of circumstances. One, if it is in an educational setting, then you are ethically bound as a professor, as an, as an educator, to present the facts as, um, as you know them, uh, as you know them to be. Uh, but one should not necessarily expect uh, the student to be convinced under those, uh, under those circumstances. The sad fact is if someone is completely ideologically convinced of something that is a counterfactual, there's not a lot you can do to bring them back. You can't offer counter-programming to convince them that they're mistaken. In fact, if you do, there's evidence that shows there's a strong backfire effect. If you prove someone is wrong about something, if you give them absolute smoking gun evidence of why they're wrong uh, about the Earth being 6,000 years old or, or whatever it is that they believe, you're likely to end up with someone who believes that even stronger than before they met you, that you're doing more harm uh, than, um, than good. So I generally don't get involved in those conversations simply because I don't think that they're, they're effective. Um, other situations where I will get involved is, um, you know, if, if, if what someone believes is dangerous to their health or well-being or that of someone else, like if someone is a hardcore um, vaccination denier and they're not vaccinating their kids, then I feel that I think everybody has a moral obligation to do everything you can to convince them uh, of the error of their beliefs. Again, admittedly, there being a, a small but non-zero chance that you will get through to them. And another situation is if there are onlookers. Bill Nye, the science guy, did a public debate a few years ago with um, uh, Ken Ham who runs the answers in Genesis, I believe, and is a big deal at the, um, at the Creationist Museum and the Ark Encounters theme park in, I want to say, Kentucky. Um, doesn't mean that I'm right, just I want to say that. Um, anyways, uh, people were saying, you're not going to convince these guys that you're right and they're wrong, and you're just giving them, um, you're just giving them attention, so why talk to them at all? And his argument, which I think is valid, is that a lot of people watched that discussion who may have been fence-sitters, who are um, people who are observing the debate and may not have a dog in the fight one way or the other. And you can potentially bring those people over uh, to the, the evidence-based side, even if you can't actually bring over the people you're actually talking with. So you can, you can get to, to, um, to onlookers. So, you know, if, if you have a debate with an ardent creationist in class, you're probably not going to change their mind. You might, but you probably won't. You might plant a few seeds that may sprout later on, or, or maybe they'll go the rest of their life thinking that. But the rest of the class watching that debate may get something out of it that may not be immediately apparent to you. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of my long-winded answer uh, to, to that. The, the, um, I look at ideo ideology is sort of a terminal illness. And when I say ideology, I mean any kind of non-factually based um, system of, uh, of belief, not just religion, as you uh, 
pointed out, but other kinds of, of ideologies as well. And when people are given the option of, I can either reject this deeply held set of beliefs on which the entirety of my identity is based, or I can reject the facts that are being presented to me by an academic, which one's going to go? It's always going to be the facts that are going to go. Uh, and, and nowadays, our, our media are just the whole way that we curate and transmit information makes it possible in a way that it never has been to select a la carte information that only supports our beliefs. It's an engine for confirmation bias that never really existed before. The 24-hour news cycle started that, and the internet has raised the stakes on that a thousandfold. So to go back kind of to where we kind of started this, the internet got me into this um, evidence-based thinking, but it also is a huge tool for the propagation of, um, of bullshit. Um, and it makes it possible for everybody to find the flavor of bullshit which suits their existing beliefs um, uh, the best. I, I admit that that was a bit of a, a straw man I threw out there for you. And, but I, I really, I like your answer and I appreciate that. And I think it's one of the important things to, to draw out of your lecture and, and out of any of these conversations, which is that our, what do you say, our intellectual or academic ideologies are in and of themselves, I wouldn't say bullshit, but sometimes the stakes are, we have to weigh the stakes and trying to dissuade someone of something that gives them value in their life isn't isn't as important on a day-to-day -day basis as those values. Um, but, I, but I do get a lot of students who, who want to go have that argument. So I do take your point that sometimes someone else is listening sure. and that's that's valid too. So thank you. And I'd like to kind of ask a, a follow-up question. So in my classes, for example, or at least one of my classes, I take very seriously that students can find any bit of information online. And I'm not very aware or sure how they are, how capable they are of judging the validity of that information. So for any given topic, I will assign an original research article published in an academic journal, uh, some sort of online review of said topic and then some sort of video on that topic and then get them to compare and contrast it so that they can actually see how much is lost in translation from an original article all the way up into popular media. Uh, and I'm wondering what tools or skills or what you might do in your classroom uh, to help students better evaluate information. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I, I do um, a few classes that are aimed primarily at underclassmen freshmen, sophomores, and they very often do come in with just shocking ignorance uh, about how to evaluate uh, sources. And I spend a lot of time kind of doing damage control in, in that regards. I, I will say, you know, for, here, here's a five-page paper on, on topic X, and I want to see three valid sources. What is a valid source? What do I mean by that? And we get into discussing what is a peer-reviewed source uh, as opposed to a non-peer-reviewed uh, uh, source. What kind of 
Um, I, I say I don't want any internet, or you, I have to, you have to limit the number of internet sources, which then runs into a lot of confusion about if I, if I download a copy of the AJPA and use a reference from that, is that an internet source because it came in electrons into my laptop um, in, in the same way as, um, you know, uh, uh, bigfootisreal.com uh, or, or something, which I made up, but it probably exists. Um, we'll put that on our program yeah. notes if we find it. Yeah. So, so, um, try, so, you know, to, to actually spend some time talking about how to be a good consumer of information, I think is, is vital for educators, um, in higher education today. And I think it should be something which we start with, you know, oh, I don't know, kindergarten, uh, would probably be, be, um, uh, early, uh, enough in that regards, Kara, your, your, um, the assignment that you just described there is a great idea to look at like the original publication, uh, and then look at what actually ends up in the popular press. So anything that has to do with cell biology, if the science press picks it up at all, it'll be thus and such a potential cure for cancer, mm. uh, or, or, or something, uh, along. Along those lines, so they're trying to go for what will get the most eyeballs on the page, and trying to pull the most sensationalistic possible interpretation um, out of it. And very often, it's it's very much not what the original authors meant uh, uh, meant to say. So that's I think that kind of um, teaching some awareness of how of how poorly scientific information is presented. In most uh, in most popular media, I think is also vital. I'm I'm very proud to say I've had three three publications that have gotten a ton of press, and all of it has been completely misrepresented and amplified to make me look like a genius. So this is actually a great segue into our final question, at least at this point. Uh, since you bring up peer-reviewed articles, and oh, we're yeah. going to bring it to some current anthropology that has hit the news cycle, actually, I guess, relatively hard for anthropology. Uh, so there have been two articles, one that's come out in Nature and one that's come out in PLOS One. Uh, so the Nature article is stating that humans made it to North America about 130,000 years ago, and which is, you know, well, well earlier than anything we've ever thought. And then the other one is, the PLOS One article is that humans, or at least hominins, uh, may have first come about in Europe. Uh, so both of these articles have received a huge amount of pushback from the anthropological community. Uh, however, they are published in really big flagship high impact journals, uh, the ones that get picked up by the media. So a couple of questions for this, and I know Sean has been preparing for these and has many, many things to say. But many words. Many words. Many words. Uh, so one, your thoughts on the articles, and maybe don't go super in-depth, but two, how do we as, you know, an academic and scientific community deal with these, you know, somewhat dubious studies that are yeah. getting published in really high-impact places? Um, I am not particularly familiar with the plus one article I've, I've seen the headlines about it so I'm, I'm going to leave that one alone uh, but I'm, I'm pretty uh, pretty well versed on the the piece in um, in nature I'm, I'm, I'm torn on this one there's been a first of all there's been a lot of people banging on nature saying you shouldn't have published this at all 
And, you know, I, I'm a journal editor. I edit the journal Northeast Anthropology somewhat a little bit. It's just right below nature in impact factor, I think. If you go like one down, it's, that's, it's, it's not a big deal uh, as journals go. But at the same time, if an article has gone through peer review and if the peer reviewers have said, yes, you should publish this, you can make an argument that there's an ethical imperative that, that yeah, you should publish it. And also, there's often an assumption that once something is published, everybody agrees with it and thinks it's fact. And that's not the case. Publication is the first step. It's letting an idea out of the nest to go have its make its way in the Darwinian world of intellectual uh, combat, and um, and that is what we're what we're seeing what we're seeing now. Most people don't understand that though, and the risk that I think editors should be more aware of is what kind of headlines are going to be coming out of the um, uh, are going to be coming out of the article uh, in question the article about humans evolving in in Europe for one thing I mean I could easily see uh, someone pursuing some kind of white supremacist ideology grabbing a piece of that and, and, and running with it and someone should uh, maybe uh, take that into account now, Specifically, the article about people living in uh, North America 130,000 years ago, for me, it fails a plausibility test. Most people will start analyzing a story based on the facts of the story. And a point I make to my classes is that's actually the second step. The first thing you should do is say, given everything I already know, how likely is this story to be true? Should I even be looking at this at all? Am I, am I wasting my time? And in this case, again, uh, 130,000 years ago is 100,000 years or more before the earliest accepted archaeological evidence for human occupation of, uh, of North America. It's so far back that you would have almost have to have been dealing with some kind of archaic hominin, um, either an archaic Homo sapiens or something akin to a Neanderthal or something else even more primitive. The possibility that something along those lines could have made it to North America at all is challenging, but not um, but not impossible. The nature of the evidence that has been put forward are basically broken elephant bones and some rocks that don't look like they're supposed to be uh, where they're actually found. Um, and this has been put forward as absolute evidence of human manipulation of the of the uh, mammoth, I think they were, uh, bones, and of the manufacture of bone tools. But if there's anything which has been the fundamental evidence of human behavior, again, going back to what we already know, it's stone tools. Where are the stone tools? There were stone tools in Africa two and a half uh, million years ago, but these guys had no stone tool kit whatsoever. They were an entirely bone-based technology that's never been demonstrated anywhere ever for much more primitive um, uh, hominins. So, you know, that, that's, that's problematic as well. So, again, I'm, I'm of two minds. The, the press that's come out of these stories has been, un, mostly what I've seen has been misleading and distressing and oversimplified. It has started an interesting conversation. What is evidence in these, in these areas? Are these guys meeting the standards of evidence? I don't think so. I'm certainly not convinced. But uh, I don't know. I, I wonder if more harm than good has, um, has come out of this. 
So you do bring up something. I love your phrase, intellectual combat. Yes. And I'm pretty much going to steal it from here on out. Feel, um, feel free. So for us, that's normal and that's good. Having that debate, having that conversation, leading to things like what is evidence. For us, that is good. But the public looking they in, don't get that. they don't get it. So I guess, how do we address that? To be like, no, this is actually good science. The fact that we're having a debate is yeah. good science. That's part of our process. Let, let me point the finger squarely at science and say one of the things which we tend to do collectively, present company accepted, uh, we tend to do a pretty bad job of informing the public of what it is that science actually is. The media, sometimes they try and they make a best effort, but it's not their job. They're, they're not trained. Um, so they tend to do, you know, uh, um, results are mixed, let's just say. The fact that five scientists have five different interpretations of one set of data, to us, seems pretty normal. Um, and that those ideas, those different interpretations are being crash-tested crash to see which one uh, ends up being explaining the most data, is the most plausible, and which uh, dominates the consensus of, um, of, the, of the argument. The public looks at that and says, well, they don't, they don't know anything, they don't agree with each other, therefore all science is bullshit, so I'm going to agree with the shiny man on the television tells me. Um, and that's largely on us to make the case to educate people. Here's how science, here's how the sausage of science actually works. What is, uh, what is science? Science is not a body of data, it's a method. And here's how the method actually works. And here's why it is superior to, um, uh, to other methods, like, um, you know, like, like uh, Churchill said about democracy, it's the worst possible method except for all the others, you know, <laughs> paraphrasing Winston. But yeah, that's that's something which I incorporate in in classes a lot to talk about, you know, talk about pseudoscience, but also get into the weeds, maybe in upper level classes and talk about things like p-hacking and why just because something is published doesn't mean it's right. Um, and, and how, um, uh, you know, how articles actually get published. What is the file drawer effect? Why don't negative studies ever get published? How does all of this affect the... Um, uh, the, the literature, which is the, the, the fundamental corpus that, that science is, is based on. I hear several, we, we've been tossing around ideas for the name of our podcast in general. I hear several good ideas. You might have just named it the Sausage of Science for us. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I like that. Um, we should actually have a future podcast with a journal editor. This is what you talking makes me think about, about the process and what peer review actually entails. Because I, you're right, um, the behind the scenes thing is is totally obscure to most people get the editor of AJPA uh, or or whoever edits the the, mm -hmm. the you know the journals that are big in in your field it's the only one I know of so I keep saying that one um, uh, but you know get, get yeah, I'm sure those guys can usually would, would be willing to talk to you about what exactly goes into their job in like getting a manuscript from being sent in through peer review and out the door that's something which you know I didn't know anything about until I had to do it myself and I think that would be a learning experience that, that your listeners might um, might benefit from. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Well, we have a whole amazing and hilarious lecture to listen to now. I just want to warn parents out there, as though you hadn't figured this out, there may be some curse words in this podcast. 
Um, it was the lecture is in a drinking establishment. I will, it is I will point that out. I was not imbibing myself. I was, I was, I'm, I'm stone cold in, uh, uh, in that. But, but I, I am occasionally given to, to, to some potty talk. So I hope I didn't go over the top with anything. But uh, yeah, let, let the, let the, let the parents know. As long as we put a disclaimer, we're good to go. Okay. So. Yeah, and Kara and I were trying to mind our P's and Q's, but I already violated the Q. Kara's been much better. I want to conclude the interview and just, just thank you. Thank you very much for asking me. This is great. Yeah, and thank you for being our first one and putting up with the inevitable technical issues. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it is inevitable. This was, this, was, this was great, and um, I, look forward to, I look forward to hearing about it. Happy to talk about this kind of stuff anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. Bye, Chris. Bye. Great first podcast. It was really wonderful to have Sean in our quote unquote studio, which includes my office with hanging air plants and skulls. Uh, but we want to remind you again of how to get in contact with us. So if you don't want all of these podcasts to be people from the University of Albany or Alabama, uh, you might want to get in touch with us. And the best way to do that is going to be probably through email. So mine is going to be cacabach at albany.edu. And that's going to be C-O-C-O-B-O-C-K at albany.edu. And you can also find me on Twitter, which is at Kara.Akabach. Um, no, no dot. I lied. It's just at Kara Akabach. That's my Skype name. So if you want to Skype me, you can do that too. Don't Skype me. I won't answer. Um, you can reach <laughs> me by email at cdlynn, L-Y-N-N, at ua.edu. Or you can message me or, or tweet me at chras underscore ly um, on twitter and or you can find both of us on facebook and the human biology association is in all of those places as well so facebook is human biology association um, join us there our website is humbio.org h-u-m-b-i-o.org and our twitter is at humbioassoc that's h-u-m-b-i-o-a-s-s-o-c but we're not quite done yet. Uh, though this was our first podcast, we've got another one that'll be coming up. Uh, and who are we going to have joining us, Chris? Oh my God, it's so cool. We had a lecture here at Alabama by Andrea Wiley. She's the outgoing president of the Human Biology Association. And she's done some amazing research on milk, right? So personally, as someone who is quote unquote lactose intolerant, <laughs> she validates that I am actually wild type, and it's the rest of you guys that are mutants. And she also talks about um, how biocultural anthropology is actually um, represented in, in the literature, so something that we both do and, and think a lot about. So we'll be getting that. Uh, we'll be interviewing her shortly, and we have a lecture uh, that she gave here as part of our anthropo uh, biocultural anthropology and health series, or the Binden series at the University of Alabama. All right, wonderful. Thank you all so much, and we hope to uh, have you listen to us next time. Yeah, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.